My name is Dario Hasenstab. I have a degree in international affairs, and I'm here with Walter Hagritz, a former university professor of mine, as well as an IR consultant. And together, we're bursting the Western bubble. Today, we will analyze how to understand the Iran nuclear deal through the lens of the Western bubble. While Western societies have many strengths and significant weaknesses, in order to analyze these, we use the concept of the Western bubble. Boulder, what is the Western bubble? Well, this is uh, what I told you last week. I took some notes. I will read them again for you. Um, Because of over four centuries of unprecedented success internally, as well as in terms of global power, countries in the West have created their own self-aggrandizing mythology in which the superiority of their system, democracy, liberalism, capitalism, have essentially become unquestioned in the 21st century. Politicians and other leaders are criticized for managerial and ethical mistakes, but the system itself gets a free pass, and this bubble leads to two major problems. Internally, rot is setting in, and the reaction of our societies is to look at symptoms rather than the underlying causes. And secondly, our foreign policy is dogmatically viewed as essentially good, representing moral righteousness in a world of full of authoritarian evil. So whichever mistake we make in foreign policy, it's okay because we're the good guys. Every episode of this podcast follows the same structure, if we can call it that. In order to analyze what each topic um, is about, we are answering the following questions. What are the facts? We will provide a factual basis for our analysis. What is the bubble, where we analyze the overarching problem of Western delusion? What is the personal bias, where we see how the leaders, especially Western leaders, are affected by non-rational factors? What is the damage, where we look into how and why Western, the Western bubble is harmful? And finally, what is the future, where we lay out how each topic might develop down the line. If you'd like to know more about how this podcast started or who we are, make sure to listen to our introduction episode. This being said, uh, let's get to it. Starting with uh, today's fact sheet on Iran. Um, Iran is a country of 84 million people with a strong military, a sanctions-weakened economy, and a country that distinguishes itself from the majority of the the other Middle Eastern countries by following Shia Islam and and its Persian origins. Um, Iran is the main focus of the Joint Comprehensive uh, Plan of Action, or as we will call it today, the Iran Nuclear Deal, which was an agreement between the Islamic Republic of Iran and the permanent members of the UN Security Councils, plus Germany, plus the European Union. Um, And this was about regulating Iran's nuclear activities. It was basically Iran enabling complete transparency of its nuclear facilities, monitored by the International Atomic Energy Agency, in exchange for sanction relief, in particular Western sanctions. The agreement was signed in 2015 after 12 years of negotiations. However, Iran's nuclear activity um, has a long history. It began in the 1970s under Mohammad Reza Shah, um, by then the the leader of Iran, who modernized it, uh, the country, and enjoyed good relations with the West. So good that it was the U.S. Atom, uh, Atoms for Peace program providing nuclear systems to Iran. During this time, Iran signed the Treaty of Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons as a non-nuclear weapons state. After the 1979 revolution removed the Shah, placing the Ayatollahs in power, Iran's nuclear program resumed with the help of Pakistan. In 2002, Iranian dissidents publicly revealed the existence of two undeclared nuclear facilities, which alarmed the Atomic Energy Agency. Iran then faced the prospect of being referred to the United Nations Security Council, and with the pressure of this, entered into diplomatic negotiations with France, Germany, and the United Kingdom. 
This led to Iran agreeing to cooperate fully with the um, International Atomic Energy Agency and temporarily suspend all uranium enrichment. In August of 2005, the newly elected president of Iran, uh, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, accused the negotiators of treason for not taking into account Iran's interest and announced that Iran would resume uranium enrichment. This led to, to the Ato Atomic Energy Agency um, referring uh, Iran to the United Nations Security Council, which led to the format as we know it today. France, the UK, the United States, uh, China, Russia, Germany, the European Union and Iran um, are now, we're now working uh, together on, on a solution. Um, during this time, we also see countless United Nations Security Council resolutions co condemning Iran's actions, however, without any notable reaction uh, from Iran to this. In August 2013, three days after the inauguration of the new Iranian president, Rouhani, he called for a resumption of, this, of serious negotiations with the permanent members of the United Nations Security Council, plus one, plus one, Germany and the European Union, on the Iranian nuclear program. Two years later, the agreement was signed by all parties in Vienna. In May of 2018, however, the United States officially withdrew from the agreement after the then US President Donald Trump signed a presidential memorandum ordering the reinstatement of harsher sanctions and declaring the Iranian Revolutionary Guards as a terrorist organization. For the next year, European countries tried to save what was left of the agreement, but ultimately, in 2019, Iran announced that it had started to increase uranium enrichment beyond the originally agreed upon limit. On January 3rd of 2020, uh, US President Trump further escalated the situation by ordering the assassination of Qassem Soleimani, the commander of the Quds forces, the foreign branch of Iran's Revolutionary Guards. Under US President Biden, the P5 uh, plus 1 plus 1 format resumed uh, without the official participation of the United States in, in 2021 and seemed to make promising progress but has stalled since March of 2022, mostly due to the fact that Iran demands the Revolutionary Guards to be taken off the terrorism list, a, Trump that, uh, a move that Trump did in, two, in 2019, um, and the US denial to do so. Uh, time is running out, tells us the media. Iran is only weeks away from enriching uranium to enough uranium to develop a nuclear bomb. And with this, I ask you, Balder, when are we all going to die? Or what is the bubble here? Um, well, let's let's first talk about whether we're all going to die or not. Um, this has been a um, a claim that has been made by Western intelligence agencies and at times politicians ever since the revolution. You can go back uh, for the past 40 years and in 1980, in 1983, in 1986, in 1990, throughout these decades, over and over again, there's report after report saying that Iran is this close, just very, very close to uh, developing nuclear weapons. And this is still what's going on today, right? So um, this idea that Iran is actually developing nuclear weapons and is then going to be a problem for all of us, that's not at all uh, a given fact. It is, it's a result of an anti-Iranian bubble that exists in the West. Uh, it's important to make that distinction. And uh, the second bit, uh, what you mentioned in your fact sheet, is the assassination of Soleimani, or if you like, the murder of uh, Soleimani on Iraqi soil, um, by the United States would have been impossible without this Western bubble, right? A Western bubble uh, that created such a 
dark space around Iran that it's that there was very little international outcry about the fact that one country assassinated a high-ranking general of another country, um, which in any other circumstances would be outrageous. And an act of war. Uh, and an act of war. I mean, just imagine it the other way around. Imagine Iran assassinating a four-star U.S. general. I mean, that, that would lead, not just from the United States, but globally would lead to outrage. And yet, because of this, this, this Western bubble creating such a... A negative label on the Iranian regime, it sort of seems legitimate, almost as if the Iranian regime is similar to just a random US-targeted terrorist organization, right? Uh, which, of course, is not the case. And, and so where's this and, and so where's this sentiment coming from? Um, because, I mean, I, I do not, I cannot remember a time, I mean, well... <laughs> That's, that's not very difficult because I'm still young, but I mean, well, I do not remember a time where Iran wasn't evil. Was there a time, I mean, I assume under the, the Shah, before the Islamic Revolution, where Iran wasn't so vilified by the West? Yeah, that's true. I mean, I don't remember it either. Um, I was one years old when the Islamic Revolution took place, and that Islamic Revolution in 1979 um, removed essentially a Western puppet, right? That's a bit of a blunt statement. I mean, the the Shah was his own leader, but he was very much in line with what the West was doing in the Middle East in general, putting strong uh, leaders in power in a post-colonial era that would be on the side of the West, that could be controlled by the West and um, would provide nominal independence to the countries, but still with uh, great influence in the case of Iran, especially from the United States and the United Kingdom. The Shah was, in many ways, a puppet of the West. Then 1979 comes along and it removes this, this, this influence. It completely disconnects Iranian politics from Western politics. And that creates already this Western bias against Iran, right? Hey, we thought we could control you. And now all of a sudden this control is gone. So that Islamic revolution led to an automatic uh, sense of Iran being evil because it removed our our guy. This reminds me of what, um, was it Rumsfeld who said about, in the 1980s about Saddam Hussein, um, Saddam Hussein is a bastard, but he is our bastard, right? There was a little bit of a sense uh, in general um, of how the West was approaching the Middle East there. Like, uh, in Iraq, in Egypt, in uh, in Iran, they had their puppets, and the Islamic Revolution messed it up. So then, apart from Iran no longer playing by the West's not necessarily rules, but by the West's liking, what other biases did we then see against that regime? Because I mean, so Iran is a theocracy where religious leaders are in charge of the country under the the leadership of one of the main religious leaders, the supreme leader, Supreme Ayatollah. What are the other biases that, that the West has against this? Well, so uh, a few that, that are important to mention here. Um, so in general, this is what you're referring to. There, there is this bias already against authoritarianism, right? The moment you, the, the Western bubble is all about we're the liberal democracy and anyone who doesn't follow this liberal demo- democratic model is somehow on the wrong side of history. That Evil. includes Russia, that includes China, but that certainly includes a theocracy uh, like Iran. Now, the West doesn't have a problem with the Vatican, uh, which is also a theocracy, but I mean, that, that has different uh, reasons, of course. The Vatican, of course, is Christian, is Catholic. And um, 
it's not just that Iran is a theocracy, which goes against the democratic bubble, but it's an Islamic theocracy. And keep in mind that the West, even before democracy rose up in Europe, uh, the West has always had this very antagonistic relationship with the Islamic world, right? Uh, where it sees it as an existential enemy, um, rightfully or wrongfully. It, it went into four crusades against the, uh, against the Muslim world. So this idea that uh, you not only have a rejection of the Western model, you also have all of a sudden a strictly authoritarian theocracy, and that theocracy is Islamic, that leads to a pretty big Western bubble, right? Then there are more things. Um, there is, of course, uh, the idea of Iran messing up the Western project elsewhere beyond Iran itself, and very easily in the West being labeled as a supporter, a, an enabler of terrorism. Now, ever since the war of terror that started, of course, in, uh, with 9-11 in 2001, with the attacks on the World Trade Center, um, the West has been obsessed, a little bit less so over the past decades, but has been very, very active in believing that it's fighting an existential war against terrorism. Without much evidence, terrorism is not an ideology, terrorism is a tactic, but the West believes that they're under threat from some kind of terrorist ideology in some ways. And Iran is seen to be supporting groups that fall within uh, that box, that fall within the label of uh, made by the West of terrorism. Um, Hamas, mostly political organization, but also commits terrorist acts, no doubt about it. Hezbollah, another uh, uh, example of that, mostly political organization, but also uh, involved in um, terrorist, terrorist activity. Um, the same could be said about the Houthis in Yemen. Um, right, so Iran is actively supporting groups that the West has branded terrorists, and the West, as a result, has even branded uh, Iranian groups themselves terrorists, including the Revolutionary Guard, of course. So the moment that the West puts the word terrorist on you as a label, it's not just that that has a insulting effect on, on the person who's being labeled as such, but it's also that the West starts thinking of you in those terms. And when I say the West, diplomats, media, uh, politicians, they start becoming biased by that self-imposed label. So not only do we see them as terrorists, but I, I always, especially when it comes to Iran, I want to bring up Israel because Israel is the, the sworn enemy of Iran. And I think this, uh, this actually goes both ways. So what's the role of, of Israel in here? I can especially imagine the, the West being very supportive of Israel as a Western project. Um, what's the role of Israel here? Yeah, not just as a Western project, because it's one, Israel is certainly an important factor in terms of either geopolitical realism, if you like, or at least geopolitical power projection. Uh, the West is a uh, is in need of strong allies in the Middle East, and Israel is no doubt a strong ally, and they let uh, Israel, as a result, get away with murder, um, figuratively, but also literally in, in certain cases, um, because, because of that realist approach. But there's something much deeper for the West, right? Israel stands still for a deeply emotional and dark part of Western history. And in some ways, the West is still busy redeeming itself towards Israel, redeeming itself towards uh, um, towards the 
the Jewish people, the terrors that were caused, the Holocaust that was inflicted upon the Jewish people in the Second World War. And that is still deeply ingrained in the psychology of Western leaders, of Western diplomats. Plus the fact that Israel is seen as the by evangelicals, by Christian, many Christians, as the chosen people who are in the promised land, which is also a non-rational but very deeply emotional, strong connection with Israel. So the moment that Israel says Iran is our rival or is our enemy and Iran says Israel is our rival, Israel is our enemy, then automatically the West chooses the side of Israel against Iran. So that's, a, again, a deeply uh, ingrained bubble that is not purely based on geopolitics, that is based on much more emotional factors that are not often recognized by the diplomats themselves. They don't, they or politicians, they don't seem to be aware of, of that bias because it is not simply strategic type of thinking it's something that we are that we grow up as i'm 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 suppose you as well i as at a very young age knew that we had to defend israel because of something that happened two generations before i was even born oh in in germany it's definitely out of the question um it's there's a there's a a difficult relationship there's a, a fine line between anything that criticizes israel that can quickly be turned uh, into the wrong direction. Uh, I, I want to draw the attention now to the to Iran's uh, revolutionary guards, uh, which, I mean, were created after the revolution of '79, um, in order to protect the uh, the political system. So, in order to protect uh, theocracy and avoid any form of regime change. So, the I mean, they 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 are very influential all over the Middle East. Uh, they have their network of militias that they finance, um, that they support with weapons as well, um, and this has been rather successful. And a quick question here, because I want to go into this a little bit more: um, Has Trump's designation of the Revolutionary Guards as a terrorist organization changed any of this, or has the killing of Soleimani in any way? weakened Iran's foreign policy through the Revolutionary Guards? The labeling of them as a terrorist, of the Revolutionary Guard as a terrorist organization, doesn't in practical terms really affect Iran that much. But what it does do is once again reinforce this image of Iran and it makes it harder for Western strategists, Western diplomats to actually rationally analyze the situation, right? So it it, it weakens the ability of the West to actually take the right course, the right path towards achieving their goals. Um, it doesn't really weaken Iran as such. And in a certain extent, it clarifies it for Iran, right? Because it says, okay, look, um, we we already have some suspicions about the West because they don't follow our theocratic ideas. They don't follow our uh, way of looking at the world. They make it very clear that they see us as terrorists. Okay, that means that we have to look at others. We have to look at China. We have to look at Russia. Uh, and in some ways it makes it easier for Iran to to know what it needs to do. And the West just shoots itself in the foot once again. So moving on to what is the personal bias. Uh, first of all, and I, I already asked this question at the beginning, but are we all going to die? So is the fear of a, of a nuclear Iran justified or is it just general panic? Right, so there's a really important distinction to be made here between the first question is, is Iran actually developing actively nuclear weapons? And uh, I don't know the answer to that. The problem is n neither does anyone else, really. I mean, if there had been absolutely hard evidence 
of undoubted evidence that Iran is very close to developing nuclear weapons, we would have seen it because politically that would be incredibly convenient for the West to publish. Um, instead, what we have is 40 years, as I mentioned before, of accusations that Iran is doing this based on a past that goes back from to before the revolution, right, when the West worked together with Iran on nuclear energy. And this, this, this fear with some indication that Iran actually might be developing the capability. Now, that question of whether they are or not is different from the question, if they were, would that actually be a problem? Would it actually be bad for Iran, uh, uh, for the rest of the world, if Iran had nuclear weapons? And maybe the knee-jerk automatic reaction is, yeah, nuclear weapons are bad. I would agree, with the exception that there are already quite a lot of nuclear weapons in the world. A lot of nations already have developed nuclear weapons. And what you see is that um, right now, the scenario, the situation between Iran and the West and Iran and Israel is already very volatile with violence. Uh, it, there is no clear indication that Iran developing nuclear weapons somehow would uh, destabilize the Middle East further. It would be a strategic problem for Israel. It would be a strategic problem for the West, but also not a great one, because what we know about nuclear weapons is that they typically don't get used offensively. So I'm thinking, uh, now I'm immediately thinking about Pakistan and India. Um, both countries, are in, uh, there's a lot of conflict going on over the, over the region of Kashmir, border region between the two countries. There have been a lot of incidents in the past um, where, where conflict or at least minor, minor conflicts or clashes broke out, but nuclear weapons have never been used. And I mean, when we're now talking about nuclear deterrence strategy, uh, isn't, uh, couldn't you make the case that a nuclear weapon or nuclear weapons make the, the world a bit safer because the threshold of using this nuclear, a nuclear bomb on an, on an opponent is so high? It is, yeah, it is the that's a very uh, fair line to take. And um, I have uh, been brought up, I mean, I, in the 80s I was a child and I remember worrying about the bomb being dropped. I still find it difficult emotionally to sort of connect to that conclusion. But I think that the, the, the conclusion is a reasonable conclusion by looking at the facts, looking at how governments have behaved. Iran and Pakistan um, have not been they have had moments that could have escalated into war that didn't escalate over the past decades because, very likely, because of their fear of nuclear weapons before uh, India and Pakistan have engaged in full-scale um, full war that was before they actually had nuclear capabilities. The reason is that countries are rightfully terrified of fighting an enemy with nuclear weapons. And that's in many ways could stabilize the situation. It brings balance to the situation. Now, again, emotionally, it's hard for me to say, hey, nuclear weapons make the world a safer place simply because nuclear weapons are so horrible if they ever get used. We know what happened to Hiroshima. We know what happened to Nagasaki. Um, the two bombs that were dropped at the end of the Second World War. It is absolutely horrendous. But yeah, um, the evidence that we have is that nuclear weapons, to a certain degree, stabilize foreign policy and they um, lead to less aggressive decision making. If you were to ask me, what do we really need to worry about with respect to nuclear weapons? It is them falling in non-governmental hands, non-state hands. 
Um, what is a terrifying scenario is a group actually getting their hands on nuclear weapons and um, detonating them in the middle of New York or London or Paris or New Delhi or Beijing. Uh, that, that would not be carried out by a state. That would be carried out by a non-state-aligned group. And then people say, yeah, that's exactly what Iran wants to do. They want to provide Hezbollah or Hamas with nuclear weapons. No, they don't. There's no way that Iran would do that because the price they would pay would be way too high for that. And and exactly here is, is where I want to ask about Israel um, when it comes to the price to pay, because Israel has been very actively, especially in the last, well, one and a half years, it's been building up, it's been increasing. There's been a lot of Israeli activity, um, I mean, around the Revolutionary Guards, uh, taking out certain commanders, even taking out the top nuclear scientists uh, in Iran. Um, do you think that if, let's say, Iran were then to acquire a nuclear weapon, um, and again, this is still based on the premise that they actually want to do this, that it could stabilize um, its relationship or whatever, whatever the opposite of relationship is with Israel? So this, the answer is yes, that's very likely. That's, I mean, we understand it's completely understandable if you're purely from a strategic Israeli perspective, you don't want this, right? Because it limits your options which might be good news actually for you in the long term, but strategically it feels that you're all of a sudden constrained because your major rival in the region all of a sudden could potentially destroy you. And that is a terrifying thought for any Israeli strategist. So it's not a surprise that they're trying to stop it. But yes, the answer to your question is exactly that, that it is very likely that one of the reasons why there's so much volatility right now is that there's a power asymmetry, there's an imbalance. Israel has nuclear weapons. Israel, even without nuclear weapons, is untouchable because it's got the whole Western military machine behind it. Iran is insecure. Iran feels threatened. By Iran having nuclear weapons, they could actually, their psychology would change. They all of a sudden would have to take a lot more responsibility than they're doing. And Israel would not be able to just go across the border and bomb certain places in Syria, in Iran, without actually having to take larger repercussions into account. Um, this is the basically the content of a very famous uh, article by the late Kenneth Waltz, the great, um, one of the, one of the, the fathers, uh, daddies of uh, realism or neorealism in international relations, for those who know the schools of thought. Um, he spent a lifetime, a career, building up a reputation as a very serious uh, analyst in international relations, a very important theor uh, theoretician. And a year before he died, he wrote an article in Foreign Affairs in, the, in 2012 exactly saying this. Iran getting nuclear weapons would actually be good news because it would stabilize the situation. Now, no one else, certainly not in the U.S. community, would have been able to write this except for Waltz, right? Because it goes so against this bubble of Iran bad, nuclear weapons bad. We can't combine those two. Uh, we will definitely link uh, this this article in the post description below. Then I want to then I want to ask. And what is Iran doing by enriching uranium? Because the, I mean, the content of, of the uh, first Iran nuclear deal of 2015 was basically that Iran would not enrich uranium above a level of 3 point something percent, which basically um, is enough for civilian use, energy, anything medical. Um, 
and now there are reports that Iran has managed to enrich uranium up to 60%. Then why is Iran doing this if it doesn't want to acquire a nuclear weapon? Is it more a, um, a tactical tool um, to kind of pressure the West into an agreement? Or, I mean, what's, what's the intuition behind here? So the, if you were to create scenarios um, about what Iran is actually doing, because again, we don't really know... Uh, I, I, I think very few people actually know exactly what the long-term plan, long-term strategy is here. The, all we know is that accusations have been made over and over again and haven't come true yet, which is important information for us to take into account, um, is that on the one extreme, you would have a scenario where Iran is actually genuinely only interested in civilian purposes in in developing nuclear energy which by the way is not a crazy idea right iran even though it has a lot of natural resources gas and oil um its refineries are out of date it it, it desperately needs sources of energy and the idea of iran just wanting nuclear energy for its own consumption is not um is not at all out of the question so that would be one extreme scenario they 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 generally don't want nuclear weapons this would be in line with uh, repeated claims by the Ayatollahs, who said it goes against our religion, it goes against our faith. We do not believe in nuclear weapons. And we don't want them. They've repeatedly denied them. And at the very other end, the extreme is that they have been for the past 42 years uh, actively trying to desperately develop nuclear weapons. But um, for some reason or other, they haven't been able to do so. Now... Because of the reasons you gave, there are signs that Iran goes beyond what it would need for civilian technology, civilian energy. That, that extreme scenario on the, on the completely peaceful side seems not um, fully convincing. But the other scenario of them purely um, trying desperately to get nuclear weapons but not achieving it so far is also not very reasonable. If you look at a country like North Korea that has managed to do it, North Korea has way fewer resources, intellectual um, strengths, um, connections, economic um, economic capacity than Iran. And North Korea did it relatively quickly. If North Korea can do it, Iran could have easily done it as well. Um, so this, neither one of these two extreme scenarios seems to make a lot of sense. Then you go into scenarios where you say, okay... Um, Maybe their main purpose is civilian energy supply, but they also kind of like the idea of having future capabilities if, if the need arises, right? And then that probably gets stimulated by a West that keeps on repeating over and over again that um, uh, Iran is actually pursuing the nuclear weapons. Um, it's, it's, it's a little bit similar to our topic from the previous episode, where... Putin obviously was seriously considering thinking about invading Ukraine, but then the West keep on that kept on calling him out on it and saying, Putin is about to invade. And Putin, we warn you, when you evade, not if, but when you invade, we will punish you, etc. etc. That only threw oil on the flames, right? It only encouraged Putin to actually go into Ukraine. The same can be said about Iran. The more the West goes on and on and on about Iran developing nuclear weapons, the bigger the opening, the bigger the window becomes for Iran to actually pursue that and to sort of fulfill expectations, right? Um, so then you get these, these middle-of-the-road scenarios, and it's, it's very likely that it's somewhere there. Iran doesn't have as its primary purpose to develop nuclear weapons, 
but its nuclear capabilities are there uh, and might become useful in the future. That is that is my best guess. Is there anything because I'm I'm thinking now that the West is is in is in need of energy uh, again? Um, will this will this be more likely to help a, 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 like a renewed nuclear deal or slow one and and how has this impacted the situation before um yeah so until until recently um both with respect to what i mentioned before of uh the restructuring of the world order but also uh this this energy supply issue um the Iran signified to Western diplomats, um, Western strategists, only a problem, basically a rival, an enemy, uh, built up over all of these decades. There were no solutions to be found in Iran, right? Iran was a headache uh, for Western decision makers, something to deal with, something to contain, something to fight, not something to provide solutions or not something to get something positive out or that was necessary for the functioning of the Western world order. But now that both there is this energy crisis and China, Russia, and other countries are knocking on the door of Western hegemony, um, all of a sudden, Iran becomes a attractive option for certain things, um, for, for doing deals, for doing business with. And that changes the bias, right? So if, if before the bias in the West was, oh, they're just a problem, I don't want to think about them, and that becomes a, re- a self-reinforcing uh, mechanism, for that Western bubble, now you see again that being broken, that being punctured, that being burst a little bit here and there because they are actually seen as potential solutions, potential good things, which is new for the Iran Iranian Western relationship. Um, and that that is something that 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 will play an increasingly important part, I would assume. So is now the entire diplomatic core of the U.S. and all agencies, are they now very happy to, to start working with Iran again? Or is, I mean, basically, what's the personal bias? And now we're talking about these diplomats who are negotiating. What is their personal bias? Is that a problem or more on the upside? So, so remember, remember that uh, very similar to last time uh, when we talked about Ukraine, the general sense of a country also permeates into the psychology of those who are actually doing business with that country, right? Like I said last night, uh, when when you talk to a Western diplomat, they genuinely believe that democracy is an amazing thing. Um, they very are very likely to believe that Putin is an evil dictator. And similarly to Iran, they have been trained, they have been brought up, not just professionally, but just because they grew up in the West, believing that there's something inherently wrong with Iran, that there's something evil with Iran. And as a result, they have this inherent personal bias that uh, is clearly visible, not just among politicians and not just among uh, analysts or strategists, but also in uh, intelligence agencies. Uh, They will think at a personal level differently about Iran than, let's say, you know, a Israel or let's say um, a um, South Korea or a country that they've been told is on the good side of history, right? Um, and on top of that, which doesn't make things easier, anyone who has dealt with Iran, who has done, you know, has gone into meetings with Iranian diplomats knows there is a very big cultural difference between Western diplomats and Iranian dis- diplomats. Um, Iranian diplomats, uh, Iranian politicians 
are much more formal, much more restrained, in part because they feel this anti-Iranian bias, but in part also because that's their theocratic upbringing, right? That's the way they're being told and trained to behave at a foreign policy level. So there is a clear disconnect. And we know in foreign policy that this is an impact. It is easier to do positive, productive, constructive business with someone who thinks a little bit like you, who who has the same attitude, who understands your jokes, who seems relaxed and you can relax around them, than someone who is very alien to you. And from a, let's say, American diplomatic perspective, there's little more, there, there's, there are a few th- um, types of people more alien than an Iranian diplomat who comes in in sober attire and starts straight away talking in theocratic religious terms about what needs to be done. That is, that is something that makes it very hard for Western agencies to actually engage with them. So now that we've talked about all these biases again the, the west seeing iran as as fundamentally evil um that there's no real need for a solution depending on how you see the energy um well the energy problem uh, there is again just that bias against them in, in intelligence agencies diplomats and also they're not really getting along culturally then what is the damage from this um moving into the next category like what's what's the problem here would it be a problem if this doesn't lead to a new nuclear deal? Would it, is it a problem just in general? Um, how are we seeing this? So overall, in general, the, the broad damage by the Western mo- bubble in any situation um, is just bad foreign policy, right? In, in very generic terms. Uh, the moment that you are not rationally capable of analyzing the situation but you've got these deeply inherent biases that you're not necessarily even aware of is the moment that you're going to be less good at your job so foreign policy makers foreign policy analysts the media are not as good as they should be at analyzing iran at dealing with iran at working together with iran they're just in general terms bad at it because of this inherent bias um What makes it worse is that in the case of Iran, um, unlike North Korea, Iran is actually an important, very powerful player, not just regionally, but potentially globally for countries such as Russia and China. Now, if you're a Western policymaker, what you're more than anything concerned about is to have a 21st century where your Western project will still continue. That means that you don't want to push Iran into the hands of Putin or Xi Jinping. And that's yet exactly what is happening right now. The more the West, the United States in particular, uh, continues to be aggressive, continues to have a problem in dealing with Iran on a sort of rational uh, partnership level, uh, the more it is likely that Iran will strike deals with with Moscow and with uh, Beijing. And, and that would, in the long term, really damage the Western project more than anything. And this is a common recurring theme, right? That this Western bias, this pro-Western bias, actually leads to a weakening Western project in the long term. Uh, by not being able to see things for what they are, they're actually shooting themselves in the foot very, very badly. Now, then there, there's a whole list of um, specific issues that I can go through, if you like, um, uh, for example, there is the military wastage. You've got 
continuous uh, attention being paid to the Straits of Hormuz. Hormuz. Uh, even a couple of days ago, there were these, I don't know if you saw the video, but it was with little Iranian, Iranian boats circling uh, US warships. And it was presented in the media as, uh, oh, look how aggressive Iran is. But hang on, just look at the map and look where this is happening. What are US warships doing there all the way across the ocean, all the halfway across the world, whereas this is Iranian waters, or at least it's international waters, but it's Iranians, Iran's backyard. So the way this gets presented is, oh, Iran is being militarily aggressive against the United States. But really the question should be, hang on, who is more legitimate in being there? The country that is only 20 miles away or a country that is 4,000 miles away, right? That's uh, uh, And then talking about the, the region in particular, um, what's what's the damage here? Because I mean, it's not, now you're just isolating uh, Iran. There's there's no there's no real resolution going on. What's what's the what's the, the damage that this Western bubble is causing in the Middle East? Right. So in the Middle East, the West has some very serious challenges. Um, Essentially, it is being pushed out of the Middle East, right? It's neo-colonial projects in the Middle East failed, where it's, it's, it propped up those strongmen. And you see at a individual state level over, over and over again over the past 20 years, the West retreating. Um, they completely messed up Afghanistan, obviously. Um, there, Iran could have been an incredible source of support. Um, Iran doesn't have any natural... Um, sympathy for the Taliban in, in Afghanistan at all. And so um, if the West had been able to communicate with Iran on a more open, a more productive level, then Iran could have really played a big role there. Uh, even more extreme example is the fight against ISIS. ISIS, an arch enemy of both Iran and the West, and yet they couldn't cooperate together once again because of this anti-Iranian bubble, because of this Western bubble. Um, that, of course, can also be seen with respect to uh, the global energy supply that you mentioned. And even something like Syria, where Iran has a more direct strategic interest, right? And you could argue that rationally, realistically, um, there is a conflict of interest in Syria between the West and between Iran. Um, even there, the inability to actually communicate about this meant that you had this incredible chaos that eventually was won by Iran and the Assad regime is still in place in Damascus, uh, which is a huge victory for Tehran, where uh, the West has basically been pushed out. Without this bubble, things could have looked very differently at, those, at, at that level. That is not to say that Iran and the United States are, could, could be, you know, BFFs, the best friends forever, that, that's very unlikely. There are some genuine, legitimate differences in interest, in perspectives. But that's okay in an international world order. That's, that's how the Westphalian system is set up. Uh, the way to deal with that is through communication and through working together and not through a blind hatred for the other side, right? Mm -hmm. Now that we've established this, uh, let's look into the future. Um, because you have you have the situation as it is, but but let's see. We're always interested in, in where is this uh, going to develop. Um, I think I think the the first and most interesting question is, uh, what is our take on on the Iran nuclear deal? Was um, Donald Trump successful enough in quote unquote sabotaging uh, the Iran nuclear deal by? 
putting in place harsher sanctions by listing the Revolutionary Guards as a terrorist organization. Um, what, like, I mean, what's 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 to come from here? Because it the way it currently looks is that um, the Biden administration is not willing to delist the Revolutionary Guards uh, as as a terrorist organization. What's what's to come here? Yeah. So um, the the Trump policies with respect to Iran only exacerbated the problem from the West. It didn't really affect that much the Iranian position anyway, like we said before. And now the question is more from uh, a U.S. perspective and a European perspective. But Europeans have always been a little bit more open to dialogue with Iran than the United States, obviously. Uh, they were furious with Trump for doing what he did, for example. So here we have to you know, come, we have to distinguish a little bit between different types of actors in the West. But uh, the question is, Will the West be able to, to understand that in order to strengthen their own geopolitical positions, they, they have to reverse this game. They will have to reverse um, this anti-Iranian sentiment. And that is not to say that they can't criticize Iran. That is not to say that they can't have competitive issues with Iran, that they can have disagreements with Iran. But will they be able to sort of position Iran as just another country to sometimes work with, to sometimes compete with in a complex global order? Or will they continue this insane attitude of Iran are the bad guys in history, are the bad guys of uh, the world order, and we refuse to acknowledge any productive cooperative uh, um, relationship with them because that would then sort of blemish our you know, our clean souls, our, 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 our self-image of being pure at heart. Um, as long as the West continues that approach, they will shoot themselves in the foot and then the, the result will be that uh, Iran will continue to drift towards China and Russia, whereas the West is already overstretched in its ability to, to deal with those two countries, right? It's already struggling to uh, deal with a resurgent... Um, China and a resurgent Russia that are starting to call serious questions um, uh, about where the West wants to be in 20, 30 years time. With Iran on the other side, that's going to be much, much harder. Um, the problem here, of course, is that even if a rational analysis would lead you to think, okay, in the next few years, Biden and others will need to go back to a more reasonable approach, um, you've got Israel being a, a problem, right? Israel will vehemently oppose any warming of relations between Tehran and the West for obvious reasons. Um, here, I see this is this is something that I never understood. Uh, so you have this format of the permanent members of the Security Council. You have Germany in there for some reason. You have the European Union. Um, however, you do not consult uh, regional regional um, well forces at all. So Israel is not part of it. Saudi Arabia not. Um, is this part of the Western bubble, or why are they not being included? Because there's very like on a regular um, regular occasions, Saudi Arabia and Israel will will voice their their dissent, uh, not their dissent, um, well their their opposition to not being included in these in these uh, negotiations. Well, the, the, the problem is that by including them, it would complicate any negotiations even further, right? I mean, the West is already taking a pretty hard approach towards Iran. The moment you have Syria and Saudi Arabia, uh, sorry, Israel and Saudi Arabia in there, it would basically bring any kind of conversation to a halt. For one, because 
Israel dislikes Iran for a very different reason than Saudi Arabia dislikes Iran. Um, Saudi, Saudi Arabia and Iran are natural rivals with respect to the Islamic world. Uh, Iran trying to to promote and to strengthen its Shia ties, whereas uh, Saudi Arabia sees itself as a protector of Sunni Islam, um, the, the protector, the guardians of Mecca, um, those with infinite money supplies to support Islamic Sunni um, exports to Sub-Saharan Africa. And so the, the agenda that Saudi Arabia has with respect to Iran is very different to the one that Israel has with respect to Iran, and they are very different than the ones that the West have. So that would complicate matters an awful lot more. Having said that, um, Saudi Arabia and Israel haven't actually been all that good at a regional foreign policy level, right? Iran has has been much more successful, weirdly enough, than these really well-funded rivals of theirs. Whereas domestically, Iran is in dire straits. Domestically, Iran is in serious trouble. And that could actually lead to internal changes within Iran that aren't... Um, going to be caused by the West, but that could happen because of an unhappy population, because of economic downturn and all those kinds of things. Uh, at a foreign policy level, Iran has beaten Israel and uh, Saudi Arabia over the past 10 years, whereas domestically, for example, Israel and Saudi Arabia are much more stable, much more successful, of course. Mm. I mean, we can see that in Yemen, where well, for the past seven years, uh, we, we've, we've seen a, a proxy conflict between Iran and Saudi Arabia. And so, I mean, first the UAE pulling out and now Saudi Arabia agreeing to a ceasefire that does not satisfy Saudi Arabia's interests at all. Um, I think I think it's a great example of this. Um, I th to conclude this, I think the, the situation, and I, I will continue to go back to this, um, I, I think this, con this situation is summarized best, at the Western Prize is summarized best by this this problem of the like the revolutionary guards being designated as a terrorist uh, organization again if you believe what diplomats leak and the media is able to pick up this is the only this is the major thing that stands in between um a, a renewed uh, iran nuclear deal and i i think i think here if we look at the purely symbolic as we talked about earlier this purely symbolic designation because it doesn't have any real impact. If anything, the Revolutionary Guards have been very successful at implement, continuing to implement this strategy in the past few years. Um, I think this is a very nice example of, okay, the West cannot let go of this designation as a terrorist organization because, well, they are evil, um, and standing in their own way because, again, if we believe the diplomats, an agreement is just inches away, and this is the only thing, this purely symbolic decision is the only thing standing in between them. Well, and that has been and that has been actually imposed, interesting enough, enough by Iran itself, right? So Iran were the ones who made this a big deal. They, of course, they protested it from the very beginning. Um, you know, it's no no state, no no country wants its own military to be designated terrorist because it looks bad. But um, Iran, when it seemed that negotiations were going well, Iran said, "No, hang on, uh, we're only going to sign this." if we get removed from this terrorist designation, from this, this label gets taken away from us. Uh, which, by the way, is an interesting sign about where Iran believes it to be, because like you said, it doesn't really impact Iran that much at a practical level, but they clearly feel strong enough, probably because of their openings towards the East and the North, towards China and Russia, that they, um, that they can make this symbolic demand, right? Sort of like... Uh, restoring a little bit of psychological balance 
with respect to the West. Um, if you know, if 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 I were Biden, if I were anyone, I would in 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 two seconds remove that label. It it it, it is absolutely nonsensical. It's not just that it blocks proper um, cooperation with respect to very important issues with Iran. Um, it is also that it's just a, not a logical designation. Um, to put the word terrorist on the Revolutionary Guard is just simply incorrect. Um, they might be sometimes supportive of certain organizations of terrorists, but then we can play that same game for European or for North American uh, militaries that in the past have supported certain terrorist organizations, not so much since 9-11, but certainly in the past. So it is just a nonsensical designation that should absolutely be removed. But the Western bubble blocks Biden and others from actually doing that. I mean, from an, from an Iranian perspective, the way, <laughs> at least based on what I've read, uh, it's very much symbolic of the killing of uh, Commander Soleimani, yeah. um, where they believe that the only reason why the United States could kill them, uh, and it was therefore not unlawful or an act of war, is because it was only the leader of a terrorist organization, not the leader uh, of a military. So for them, it's, uh, at least, again, based on what I've read, a lot more of a symbolic meaning that, hey, we do not accept this killing of our commander, and we will definitely not accept any future killings of any commanders. Yeah, no, of, of course, but um, here we have to be very careful with the, the word lawful, right? Lawful from a U.S. perspective that someone could put, actually uh, sign the order for the assassination, the drone killing of, of Soleimani. Okay, that's that's a U.S. legal technicality that was apparently deemed necessary for that moment. However, um, there's no such thing as international law. So all of this is symbolism. And of course, uh, and well, sorry, I should clarify this. If I say there's no such thing as international law, there is a set of international agreements that we call law, but it's not actually imposed by any global authority, right? And so, of course, this is completely symbolic. And 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 it's Iran who wants to be respected, uh, like any country, but certainly Iran, it feels a lot of disrespect. By the way, notice a common theme here once again with respect to Putin and Russia. The Western bubble leads to other nations that do not fulfill the requirements to feeling disrespected and then to look for symbolic... Um, uh, this is, uh, a symbolic gesture from the West to redress, uh, readdress that, to say, okay, we do respect you. We do want to uh, be acknowledged as legitimate Westphalian states. This is definitely what has driven Putin to a large extent, and this is absolutely what's driving Tehran as well. They want that recognition that they are a lawful state, because they are. And this seems like a great moment to end today's conversation on looking at the Iran nuclear deal through the lens of the Western bubble. If you have any questions, comments, or regards, make sure to send us an email to jhasestab at reihegroup.org. We will also include this in the post description below. Um, we will try to incorporate your feedback in the following episodes. Thank you very much to our listeners for joining us today. Make sure to join us again next week when we attempt to burst the Western bubble. That is it from my side. Balder, which closing quote did you pick for us today? Um, I thought it would be appropriate to close with uh, Edward Said, the great author of Orientalism and um, many other uh, publications. Every empire, however, tells itself and the world that is that it is unlike all other empires, that its mission is not to plunder and control, but to educate and liberate. Mm -hmm.